So you get all that cash flow for free based on leverage, and then you get to take an even bigger uh, tax cut, and you get to pay even less to the government because of just where the money sits. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today, our guest is Stephen Libman from Integrity Holdings Group. Stephen has a long career in real estate investing, first starting as a wholesaler and a flipper, and he has now moved into buying self-storage, student housing, and multifamily real estate. Today, you're going to learn about the advantages of moving your wealth and your assets from Wall Street, the casino on Wall Street, to cash-flowing real estate on Main Street. We're going to talk about all the impact that he's had for his investors in getting their wealth out of that Wall Street speculation into cash-flowing real estate assets. This is a really fun conversation. Steve's a fun guy. We talked for a while before we hit record, and uh, you're going to enjoy this one. Thank you for tuning in. And without further ado, here's the interview. Stephen Libman, thank you for joining us today on Passive Wealth Strategies. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm happy to talk to you. We've been talking for a while before we hit record, and uh, we are very much of the same mind on a lot of these things. And um, I'm looking forward to bringing a lot of your bringing your message to our listeners. But before we get into that, can you give us your background in real estate and what brought you to where you are now? Sure. So I graduated Boston University in 2004. I dabbled in a couple of different industries in sales, and then I landed in uh, real estate. Worked for my my sister-in-law, she opened a brokerage, so I was doing some real estate agency sales, and then I became a broker, worked with a bunch of investors, saw that they were flipping some houses and making some money, and I was finding them those houses. And I thought, you know, I think I might be able to do this myself. And um, then we got into some wholesaling. That was 2007, eight, and um, was it seven, eight? No, 2011, mm. sorry. Uh, so 2011, we got into some wholesales and we've grown to be the largest, uh, at least one of the largest wholesalers in the state doing, you know, a couple hundred deals. Um, and we've flipped probably over a thousand houses Wow! and it was a lot of work and it was a very much earned income position. And, um, I think a lot of people that read Rich Dad, Poor Dad or get involved in this business think I'm going to create financial freedom and I'm going to um, get out of the rat race and going to create passive income. And we've created a great business, but that's all it was. It was a great job that we had. And so we started looking for uh, to get into the commercial real estate space, multifamily, student housing, self-storage. We've partnered with some amazing co-sponsors. And so far this year, we've closed on about $45 million worth of assets. And we have another $28 million or so under contract. And we have uh, effectively shut down the residential side of the business. Wow. So, so I mean, there's, there's a lot in there. And I want to start with, or, or at least comment on the wholesaling and flipping uh, aspect that you used to do and you're, you've moved away from, you mentioned it's a business. Um, so you would not rate that either of those, you would not rate either wholesaling or flipping as a passive wealth strategy. No, not at all. It's, I mean, if you've read cash flow quadrant, um, 
there's four quadrants, right? You have the W-2 employee when you're working for somebody, and then you have the small business owner, that's me, that is working and paying more taxes than everybody else because you're self-employed and you're paying taxes a few ways. And then there's large business owners that are um, have some significant tax benefit because they have 500 or more employees. And there's just one of those con- of those quarters that call themselves investors. And that's the I quadrant. And that's where passive income lives. That's where your money is making money without taking your time. Mm-hmm. And that to me is, I mean, that's the message of your podcast, right? This passive wealth strategy and flipping and wholesaling is not that it's, it's very active. And that's why flipping, for example, is taxed at such a high rate compared to anything that's considered a a capital gain when we make the investment. But, you know, when people are getting into real estate investing, we start with what we know, right? Because we don't, we might not know about syndication, but we know about flipping because, well, look, HGTV, people know about it. They think it's easy from HGTV and it's certainly not easy, but you know, that's what we're going to talk about today is getting into more of a, a real estate, a real estate investment strategy from the investments that you know about on wall street and moving those investments to main street. So you work with a lot of investors maybe almost exclusively a lot of investors who are used to be or started as investors in the stock market. And now they're investing in passive real estate with you and making, how do they make that or how do you help them make that mindset shift and get into real estate investing? So it's the same way I did, right? It's education. And there's three levels of education. And I think that people all put education in one bucket, but it's not. You have your... your kind of elementary education, right? Your um, reading, writing, arithmetic, right? And then you have your professional education, which is getting you your PhD and understanding how to do work and how to earn money. And then you have your financial education. Your financial education, I think, is the most uh, important and least talked about. And educating your investors about their finances is, you know, just like doing what you've always done to get what you've always gotten. People just they put all of their money in the stock market and kind of pray when they go to bed that it will be there in the morning. I don't do that anymore, right? I mean, the multifamily and self-storage and student housing spaces, I know that the rent is going to be paid X, Y, and Z. I could see based on history that commercial real estate assets are significantly more secure than the stock market when compared side by side over the last 200 years. So it's really just a, a an educational component. And you also have to remember it's relatively new. So it's not that people are naive to it because they just choose not to be. I mean, in 2012, the Jobs Act is really what gave us the opportunity to invest in these things. But unless you know sponsors like you and me, you can't really go to your fidelity agent and say, hey, put me in real estate. He's going to put you in a real estate (laughs) investment trust, right? And you're still going to earn four to 6%. So we, we get to do is cut out Wall Street, cut out the middleman and say you're allowed to, the IRS, SEC allows you to directly invest into things that you know, like, and trust with people that you know, like, and trust. And here's why it's better. Here's why it can be more secure. And here's why you get to take control back of your life and of your finances by choosing what investment class you want to be in. So the biggest thing is is education. It's talking to people about doing it. It's talking about money openly. It's talking about, you know, why choose this over Wall Street. And 
it, it just, you have to start the conversation. Yeah. I think that's, I think you're hitting the nail on the head with that. I mean, broadly, um, I didn't get any financial education in, you know, up to high school or in college or anything. I mean, you learn about the cash flow of a business if you take a business course, but you don't learn anything about personal finance or investing or any of that until you go out and seek out that education. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was never yeah. taught. I went to, you know, one of the top schools in the country and they didn't teach me this and I took finance classes. Right. But nobody sat there and said, hey, do you know that you could pay a, an effective zero to 10 percent tax by buying millions of dollars in property and investing and creating passive cash flow? It blew me away that you could learn how to do that. Right. I mean, I've read Tom Wheelwright's book, um, Tax Free Wealth, a few times. And first time I read it, I was like, this must be, I can't believe this guy's not locked up by now. He's telling everybody how to do this. (laughs) It's completely legal. And in his book, he says, you know, the IRS says two things. One, we can tax anything we want. Two, we're allowed to give you deductions for anything you want. And then there's like another, I think he says 5,900 pages of how to get incentivized (laughs) by investing into certain things to get these deductions. And um, yeah, it's just, that's not taught anywhere in school. I mean, how to balance a checkbook isn't, you know, so how to take control of your financial future and how to make sure that you're passing on generational wealth is something that I think we all strive for and none of us are taught. Yeah. I think a lot of the problem, I've thought about this quite a bit. I think a lot of the problem comes down to, you know, the people that we spend our time around as we grow up, you know, until say we get into our twenties, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time around. And growing up, it's your friends, it's your parents, it's your friends' parents, and your teachers. And the likelihood that those folks, the kids aren't going to know anything about personal finance and investing, teachers probably aren't going to know much because if they had that experience and that knowledge, frankly, they wouldn't really be teachers anymore. They would leave the teaching profession as we know many teachers who have gotten into real estate investing and they retire as soon as they can. And look, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, right? Like Robert Kiyosaki is. And I'll mention him a few times during this podcast because I no just problem. got back from Denver seeing him. So it's kind of fresh. But no but he's he's a pretty big, um, not conspiracy theorist, but he talks about how, you know, he has a book coming out called Fake. And he's talking about fake teachers, fake assets, fake money. And teachers, right, are, to- are told by the government what they're allowed to teach. In his book, Rich, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I didn't realize this, but his dad was the head of the teachers union and a PhD, mm-hmm. but he was his poor dad. His rich dad was the entrepreneur that was self-taught. And, and he said, you know, what's really interesting about teachers is that they're only allowed to teach what the government tells them to teach. And that curriculum does not have personal wealth and personal finance in, in, intrinsically tied to it. So, it's a problem that does start from a very young age is that the opportunity to learn about that stuff isn't typically around you. And we all know that if you grew up around your broke friends, your broke parents and your broke teachers, the likelihood of you getting out of that without some self-education is, uh, is pretty unlikely. Yeah. I mean, even it depends on how you define broke, but people who are in the rat race, who are running on the treadmill, Whereas if you want to get off the treadmill, you need to go meet people who have gotten off of the treadmill and have found a way. 
And that is how I define it because I define rich as people that get to wake up and do what they want with their time, right? Whether that's start a ministry or go and d donate time, uh, energy, and effort to whatever they choose to and not wake up and have to go to work to pay their bills. To me, that's financial freedom. When I wake up and all of my got-to pay bills are paid on passive income, then I have financial freedom. So I define everybody else that doesn't have that as broke. Mm because they haven't figured out the way to stop working. Warren Buffett said this, right? If you don't turn your earned income into passive income, you will work for the rest of your life. And we don't do a really good job of that in America, of learning how to create passive income and passive wealth strategies to get out of that, right? You have to go to work tomorrow because you got to pay this mm -hmm. bill. And when you don't have to do that anymore, it starts to take a lot of stress off of you and your brain can do really incredible things when you don't have that pressure anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, the, the reason that we're not getting educated, but I'm, I'm, a lot of the problem is problem, so to speak, is that this stuff is hard. It's not easy to go and create financial freedom for yourself. It takes a lot of work. Um, in addition to the education aspect, but as you you know, we talked before about some of the people that you're working with in your network that are getting out of Wall Street and getting into Main Street investing uh, with you and with other people um, in your network that sponsor deals. What have you found are benefits that they get and important lessons that they've had to learn along the way in terms of making that shift from Wall Street to Main Street? If we're talking specifics. Yeah, so let's talk about why I started the shift. Sure. In 2007-8, when the stock market fell out, my father lost about 45% of his wealth in the crash. And then he died shortly thereafter, so he didn't get to ride the wave back up. Wow. And the first thing that really hit me was, wow, this is a pretty volatile place to keep your money. If you can lose half of what you've saved your whole life in one market cycle. And, you know, so I've been in real estate long enough to recognize that it's a little bit more secure than the stock market. Residential real estate is even more secure than the stock market, even when the bottom fell out. But as you move into commercial, it gets even more um, safe, secure, and consistent. And that's what our investors are looking for. So the, the way that we sit down with them is just to say, hey, look, let's look historically at some numbers, right? What are some of the lessons learned that we've learned over a long period of time and how do you diversify into asset classes that minimize your risk and then we talk about the benefits right so i just had a conversation today with somebody that said well in this deal it doesn't look like i'm getting a lot of cash flow up front we're building a ground up development deal so there's no cash flow for the first year and i said that's right and he said so it doesn't sound like a great deal for me i said well what is your money doing now i said well it's in a mutual fund I said, okay, what happens when it goes up? Does it write you a check? And he said, no. <laughs> I said, of course it doesn't. I said, well, the same thing is going here, right? Going on here. Your money is accruing while we're, you know, building this thing. You're just not getting the check. And in most of our other assets that we're not building ground up, they get cash flow. So they're used to that. They're trained to now have cash flow when for the last 50 years he was trained not to ever get cash flow. So that's number one, right? Is the benefit is you get cash flow through these assets um, as they start kicking off cash flow you get 
you know, we pay our investors quarterly. So they get these quarterly checks that they don't get from their retirement accounts. And then secondly, they get those tax-free, right? So we get to do accelerated depreciation and cost segregation studies where on average, you're writing off between 30 and 40% of the total value of the asset. So if you're buying a $10 million building, you could write off three or $4 million total, and then that gets spread around the syndication. So some of these guys are writing off tens of thousands of dollars per hundred that they're putting in. So they're taking a loss immediately. So they have this huge tax benefit that offsets some of their taxable gain. And then the cash flow that they're earning is tax-free. So that's the secondary benefit. And what, you know, it takes a little bit more education to go down that rabbit hole because people are just so um, entrenched in the idea that nothing can be tax-free or at least tax yeah. deferred in a way that, you know, you're really not going to pay it for a long time. So there's a big education component with that. But you have, you know, so you have cash flow, depreciation, appreciation, uh, all the tax write-offs and the tax benefits. And then when you sell, when you sell, you have the like-kind exchange that can also help you avoid the capital gain. None of those th- exist on Wall Street, right? The government and the IRS gives you all these benefits to that because they want you to create housing and jobs and the things that we do through commercial real estate. So there's benefits and incentives to do that the government has in place that are really benefit really beneficial to not only you and I as the the owners of the building but as the passive investors are owners of the building they get the same benefit. Yeah. So there I mean there's so much in there really. I mean if you're if you're coming from a side of um you're maybe checking your brokerage account every day and seeing, you know, worrying about the current sale price, but you're not trading. You're just staring at it and sweating over, you know, how many, whatever digits, you know, you could sell everything for right now, shifting that mindset to a more cash flow and tax advantaged mindset. It's a big step to make, but there's a lot of, um, a lot of upside, if you do make that mental yeah you shift. have to do you have to do yourself the favor of educating yourself on why you would do something like this i mean this is all public record right so morningstar has it listed as the last 30 years in their mutual fund they've returned 3.6% that's before fees right so <laughs> it's not that hard to get sold on the fact that returns are better in real estate but for me it's return of investment before return on investment, right? So it's how volatile is the stock market versus commercial real estate? And when the market dropped out, residential real estate went down, it was 4.5% default rate. In multifamily, it was 0.4%. In self-storage, it was 0.04%, right? So I think the problem is part of the mental, the, the mindset is that all real estate is created equal. That's not true either. Right, it's why we're shutting down a residential side of the business and going to this side of the business because it's much more safe, secure, and consistent. If you don't believe me, you can ask any one of the syndicators that are going out and getting non-recourse loans for eighty-five percent of their value or eighty percent of the value of the property. That means banks and insurance institutions who get bailed out by Wall Street when they fail, by the way, get (laughs) (laughs) they put their money in these assets. They put your money in the stock market. They put their money in commercial real estate assets. And there's a reason for that, right? Because they're typically more educated on the stuff than we are as the general public. When I started reading all this stuff, it really opened my eyes to 
why would I do that? Right? Because I'm not the smartest guy in the room. But if I yeah. learn from the smartest guys in the room, then I become pretty smart myself. Hey, you never want to be the smartest guy in the room. You never want to be the richest guy in the room. If you are, go get another room. But you know what you said there, it's the idea that all real estate is created equal. Your average investor, or your average person, I should say, average busy professional, probably just owns their own home, which is great. No problem with that. I Go for it. I love owning my own home. It's awesome. But when you're talking about real estate investment, getting that mindset shift into a cash flow focus, I mean, I got like my cash flow hat on right now, right? So it's all about the cash flow. But people might focus on appreciation because they've maybe seen the value of their home go up significantly over a couple decades that they've owned it, but they've also entirely missed out on the cash flow aspect of real estate. So free cash flow, tax-free cash flow, right? So even if you have a W-2 job and you're taxed at a 35% tax bracket and you take that earned income and you put it into a property that breaks even from the time you bought it to the time that you exit it and you just got cash flow through the whole time and you took, let's say, a $50,000 loss but you made a $30,000 gain, you've just moved money from your income bracket at 35% to a capital gain tax bracket at 20%. So just by putting the money in a different place, you have an immediate benefit. So you get all that cash flow for free based on leverage, and then you get to take an even bigger uh, tax cut, and you get to pay even less to the government because of just where the money sits. right? So your capital gain coming out of your Wall Street account or mutual fund account when you draw down on it is taxed differently than when it comes out of commercial real estate. So the benefits are overwhelming when you start looking at potential just tax strategy on top of passive wealth strategy. So that's why it compounds so much faster, right? Is because if I can make money tax-free or make money this way, it's going to compound a lot faster, obviously, in a tax-free way. So there's just so many benefits to it. And for me, by seeing the volatility of the stock market and not trusting that, um, regardless of your viewpoint on the president, when he sends a tweet, it can literally change how the stock market goes that day. That doesn't make me feel good as an investor, right? So, I I, I don't want to be any, yeah. I don't want to be part of that at all. I want to know that a presidential tweet will not stop my rent from coming in next month. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's there's so much tied. It, it, I'm just going to leave the president stuff where it is. But you know, today um, as we record this, I saw an article today that said uh, it was um, Alan Greenspan talking and saying there's no fundamental underlying reason why real uh, interest rates in the US can't go negative, which is implying, and there's a lot of little talk right now, but it's implying that there's a lot of weakness, specifically in the stock market. Um, so that's very concerning as somebody who wants to be growing their investments, right? You know, um, we want to be buying things that are stable, right? Yeah. You don't want to, that, so that's why, back to my point of return of investment being paramount to return on investment. You know, so I mean, we have some we have one one gentleman in particular that's invested with us who's already retired, and he had his money in um, mutual funds, ETFs, bonds, things like that. And he said he was making six percent. His advisor was telling him he's making six percent of his money, and he's drawing six percent out every year to to live for living expenses. And he said, but every time I look at my account, it's going down. And I said, well. That's simple math. You're either drawing more than you're telling me or you're, you're not growing as much as you're telling me. 
And he said, no, but my advisor's telling me that I am, right? So we look at his, his statement and he is growing at about 6%, but that's before fees. So he was actually growing at about 4.2% after he was paying the brokerage fees that he was paying. I said, well, here's your problem, right? You're growing by six, but you're, you're depleting by six and you're growing by 4.2. And, um, and that was an inherent problem because every time that the stock market went up or down, it didn't just affect his, you know, thought process of his retirement in 20 years. It affects his today. It affects how long his money will be available for him to live today. So when we put him into some of these more consistent returns, and he was seeing that, well, now his his account is going up every month, and he's still drawing that amount. You know, it gives him that peace of mind that his money's not going to run out. So it's um, yeah, it's really important, I think, to get into to more stability. But the thought process, I think, for the majority of Americans is that the stock market that the stock market is more stable than real estate, and it's just. It's patently not true. Yeah. I think it, a lot of that probably has to do with the the recent crash, right? You know, or I mean, not recent, but a decade ago. But uh, since it was centered around real estate, people are naturally going to still be a little bit skittish about real estate. But uh, I don't know. I haven't been around long enough to know if that's a multiple decades type of uh, thought process, but we are where we are uh, today. Now, as far as I want to make sure we touch on the assets that you invest in and the types of deals that you're doing today uh, because I think you're you have a fairly uh, unique angle and want to make sure we cover it while we have you yeah so we 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 stay in three asset classes where you are in student housing we're in multifamily and we're in self-storage we're actually uh, closing on our third self-storage unit that we're ground up developing in Orlando in just a couple of weeks and those metrics are great. So those are the three asset classes. You hear me talk a lot about volatility. If you haven't gotten that, um, mm-hmm. you know we're pretty risk averse. So when people say, "Oh, you're risk averse, but you're betting it all on real estate," correct? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, so we are risk averse, and so we we don't um, get involved in other asset classes. It's part education, right? We've only educated ourselves really well on at a top level. You know, here's the tops of the waves during the last recession. These are the three asset classes that were the most stable and showed the the least problems. Um, storage specifically actually was the only asset class to actually increase in value during the last downturn. Mm-hmm. It increased in value by almost 5% per year during the last recession. So it's um, Forbes called it a recession-proof asset class. I didn't, but Forbes did. And multifamily, again, I, I talked about the default rate, very low, and um, and student housing, just based on parental guarantees and government loans, was also very stable, too. So those are the three asset classes that we like to be in. Um, we don't change our underwriting because of it, just because it's more stable. We don't take more risk associated with that type of property. We're still conservative in the underwriting, and it still has to return the same types of returns that we would look at on any other type of deal. But those three asset classes, I think, insulate us from the most risk in the market. Hmm. Okay. And we have, uh, for, for folks listening to the audio, by the time this posts, that deal will have well past closed, just so you know. But if you want to catch the next one, uh, keep listening, get his contact information, reach out to him. But uh, we are live streaming on Facebook, and we have a couple of questions coming in uh, from one of our loyal listeners so I want to make sure uh, we address those if you're 
open to it. Awesome. So first one, you mentioned 85% non-recourse debt. Where have you seen that uh, type of debt being issued? I mean, sort of pretty rare, right? But they're class A, um, large MSAs. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Class A multifamily buildings and large MSAs, where it's basically a bond, right? New York City, San Francisco, uh, DC, things like that. So uh, I don't see them on my deals, but we've gotten to 80% leverage in secondary markets. Hmm. Okay. Cool. Perfect answer. Uh, the next question that came in What universities have you focused on for your student housing investments? So we don't focus on the university. We look at all universities, but the metrics need to have the same value-add upside that we'd be looking for for a multifamily deal. So what we're looking for is demographic information, the same way that we would be looking at a multifamily. So you're looking at a growing school population, growing school demographic, a college that is building more buildings and expanding, has an expected enrollment of at least 25% increase over the next five years. Um so it's not school by school. It's based on the demographic of particular colleges, right? So we'll look at student housing deals all over the country. So far, it's uh, Iowa, Illinois. We're closing on another one in a couple of months in Oklahoma. Hmm. So it's um, it's not specific to a university. It's specific to the demographic. Hmm. Okay. Okay. But that, that still gives us an indication as to the universities that you've ultimately drill down into, you didn't focus on the university itself. That wasn't your criteria. Hey, I want to invest near Penn State or Rutgers to go with the uh, New Jersey aspect. You went with a, a more numbers-based approach, which is a great way to go for it, go at it, go at it. Yeah. So, and, and similar to multifamily, it's the Midwest and Southeast. So we're not looking for schools that are in, you know, uh, tenant-friendly states. We're not looking for, for um, low cap rate low cash flow type states, right? We're looking for where is the majority of the population moving to because typically job growth around a university is going to be good for the university, right? So where mm-hmm. are the demographics of the nation moving, right? New York, New Jersey, California, most exited three states in the country. So Midwest and Southeast is where most of those people are going. So those universities tend to be growing. Hmm. Okay. I think out of all the asset classes that we've um, discussed so far that you're working on, the personally, the one that I'm the most interested in growing in is self-storage. I am a multifamily investor. I am a self-storage investor, uh, but I think that self-storage or the self-storage asset class is a, a great opportunity that's not being talked about enough. So, you know, kudos for you to for being out there and getting people into the asset class. Yeah, I, I like the asset class a lot, especially with what it did during the last downturn. Um and it's still an underserved market. So, the, I mean, the numbers are staggering. One in 10 Americans now have a storage unit. Um, so in, wow. in Orlando, we're talking about um, building large facilities. So the first one we're building is 1,193 units. The next one's going to be 893 units. So these are large complexes, 100,000 plus rentable square feet. And it's not even absorbing half of what's required in that geographic area. So Orlando being the third fastest growing city in the country, they have a lot of single family homes that are going in and they don't have basements because of a high water table. Homeowners associations don't allow you to park RVs and boats in the, in the homeowners association. So 
there's a pretty significant need down there. And you have a lot of boomers that are retiring and moving down there, but can't get rid of, and I said this on the podcast, but they can't get rid of the macaroni art, right? If you look to my left, I have the hand paintings and the, you know, all the kindergarten stuff, and <laughs> but they can't get rid of that stuff, right? So where's it going to go? It's going to go into a storage unit. So we like the metrics. Um, it costs a lot less to build them, right? You don't have kitchens and bathrooms in every single unit. It's just steel and concrete. So this, the cost basis is a lot lower for uh, ground up construction and the lease up break even is a lot lower than multifamily is. And what's interesting is the price per square foot rentable is about the same as you get in a multifamily complex. I'm a big fan. And you mentioned earlier in our discussion about how self-storage performed during the last recession. I believe you said the annualized rate of uh, appreciation or however you put it was 5%. Now I wanted to ask, did that include cash flow? So it's a great question, to be honest. Um, I just know that the appreciation and value went up, and I think it was just because of demand, right? There was more people losing their houses, and they started stuffing these things. So prices were able to go up. So yeah, it would, it would affect cash flow. I mean, commercial real estate is based on net operating income, and the only way to really drive that number up by 5% is by increasing income or decreasing expenses. So it would make sense. All right, so we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. So, Stephen, I've got three questions I ask every guest here at the end of the show. I'm ready. All right, great. I think. Number one, what is the best investment in real estate that you've ever made? It was definitely a mastermind. Um, so I actually got into a group of like-minded people that were growing. This was when I was back in the single-family space. And what it did was it really encouraged me to invest in myself, grow, and get around like-minded people that were taking it to the next level. And that year we went, we, we 5X'd our business in the year that we did that by getting around the right people. And those were actually a bunch of our partners in our first syndicated investment deal. So nice. it was, uh, it was definitely that. Nice. You never want to be the smartest guy in the room and you never want to be the richest guy in the room. That is uh, two of my rules to live by. And it's, it feels intimidating sometimes, but if you're in that situation, you know, you're in the right room on the other side of that. What is the worst investment you've ever made? You know, I always love this question because it I, it's hard to find something that you did wrong that you didn't learn from that didn't ultimately pay off. <laughs> and that's such sure. like a guru type question, but it's so true. Like if, if you have the mindset that either you win or you learn, even the bad things that you do in your investing career, you've learned something. So I, I think that, trying to be on an island was really the biggest thing that held me back for years was trying to figure out how to do it on my own and trying not to reinvent the wheel but and and it wasn't prideful it really was just i didn't know that other people were trying to do the same thing i was doing so it was just really having blinders on and once i got around those people that showed me that they were doing it too and here's a shortcut that they took and here i can learn from this guy's mistake that's what changed everything so I think not having the self-awareness that, you know, I I could be around a lot smarter people and I could seek that out and do it <laughs> on purpose was probably the, uh, the biggest detriment to the growth of my business. So my favorite question of these three, what is the most important lesson you've learned in investing? I think if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I think, um, especially in the multifamily and commercial space, many hands make light work. 
and everybody can really contribute. So it's a team effort. It's not something that you can really go and do on your own. Our first deal, we found a great mentor, Sean, who, uh, you know, he offered us the opportunity. We didn't see the opportunities before. I think I told you in the beginning of the show, like we couldn't find any deals and it was really hard and we were working full time in this other business. So we wanted to make the transition, but we just couldn't. And this mentor said, Hey, I have a deal if you guys want to get involved. And doing that first deal changed everything, right? It, it created some passive income for us and it did change the world for us, but it showed us what was possible and it showed us what was, um, what was kind of the next step in that revolution. And that, that changed everything. So doing that first deal and then the second and then the third, and now we're on the sixth in the same year. Right. So, I mean, to go from zero to $75 million under management, in nine months, 12 months is, uh, it was unheard of. So the most important lesson that we learned was get around those people, right? They're going to teach you a lot more in a short period of time than you ever thought you'd be able to read or listen to podcasts about. It's just really being in the room, talking to people and saying, Hey, this is what I want to do. What's amazing is that the higher up I get in these, um, in these platforms where, people are doing really well and they're doing good stuff is they really want to help you. They've probably been there themselves. All of the millionaires that I'm friends with, which a couple years ago, it would be weird just to even say that statement. All of the millionaires that I'm friends with are, are all self-made and they're all real givers. Like they want to get you there too. And once I got around these guys, I was super intimidated, right? So be, don't be the smartest guy. Don't be the richest guy in the room. When I was in that room, I was super intimidated. And all these guys were just normal people, right? And they're all normal guys and girls. And they said, hey, this is what we did. This is how we did it. Come along for the ride. And then you make friends. And then you create teams. And then you go out and you create some real estate domination in your life. Yeah. They're not just magical beings out there that, uh, that aren't, no, they're hard workers. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, appreciate everything that you've shared today. If people want to learn more about the, the properties that you're investing in, they want to, they're interested in getting started in real estate, where can they reach you? Give us those email addresses, that URL, all that good stuff. Yeah. So, you can go to Integrity HG. The name of the company is Integrity Holdings Group if you Google us, but IntegrityHGHotelGolf.com. And uh, my, my name is Steven, S-T-E-V-E-N, at IntegrityHG.com. You can check us out on YouTube. I mean, we're, we're, we're findable. You can just Google us and you'll see us. Nice. Well, once again, thank you for everything today. Um, it's been a great discussion. Like I said, we were, we talked for quite a while before we hit record. So, you know, you and I have been talking for a while today and it's, uh, it's been a delight. Oh, it's been great, man. I really appreciate what you are doing, what your community is up to and, uh, happy to be a part of it. And hopefully I can create some value and help some folks. Oh, you've created lots of value today and I'm sure you will, uh, more in the future to everybody out there tuning in. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's an enormous help. It doesn't take you much time and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know someone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into our tribe. Once again, thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a great rest of your day, a great rest of your week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.